0: At the back of the Old Testament, you will find 17 books that we call the prophets in our English Bibles. The first four authors of the first five books we call the major prophets for the scope and for the substance of the ministry that God gave to them. And they would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. The following 12 prophets had either shorter ministries or briefer messages, or both of those, and we call those the minor prophets. And there is, I don't think, a portion of Scripture that we neglect more than we neglect the minor prophets. I I know that we also tend to neglect Leviticus, but at least we know where Leviticus is in the Bible, right? as opposed to the minor prophets, which one by one we tend to have to look up in the table of contents, if if we'll admit it. And I think maybe we have a good idea. Uh, we tend to neglect Leviticus because of, um, well, just to be honest, uh, the the tedious nature of the giving of the law. And, and we know that's why we neglect the book. Why we neglect the, the prophets is a different matter because... We don't necessarily even know what the content is. And I want to, uh, I want to work on repairing that, at least in this one book, The Minor Prophet Micah. Today I want us to get a good introduction to Micah. Micah the man and Micah the book. And I want us to concentrate our attention in time on this exhortation that he gives to us at the beginning of his book. It's the, the exhortation around which his whole message really revolves. And that exhortation is to hear the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that you would be gracious to us to give to us your Holy Spirit. And by your Spirit, Father... Hearts that are in tune with what you have to say to us. Hearts that, Father, are like that good ground, that fertile, rich soil that is ready to absorb the seed of the Word of God. I pray, Father, that we would not be that hardened path on which the seed falls but is quickly taken and stolen away by Satan so that we cannot understand and so that we cannot believe. I pray that we would not be that, that thorny soil or that rocky soil, which seems to show in the beginning so much promise in its reception of the seed of the Word of God, but quickly dies. I pray, Father, that by Your Spirit, our hearts would be good ground to receive the seed of the Word and, Father, to bear fruit. Do a, a great work in us to continue the work that you have already begun and promised to bring to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. We look forward to that day. We've sung of it already, Father. It's, it's in our hearts by faith. We long for Jesus to come. May he come quickly. Until he does, may we be found faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are beginning a study of one of the minor prophets. It raises the question, what is a prophet? The first man that the Bible calls a prophet is in the book of Genesis. It's identified, he is identified, it's Abraham. Abraham is the first to be called a prophet, and the second, which might surprise us to be called a prophet, specified, is Moses' brother. He thought maybe I was going to say Moses. But it's Moses' brother, Aaron, who is identified as a prophet. And I just quickly want to look at him as kind of a a test case. He is not called a prophet of the Lord. But if you'll glance down at Exodus 7, verse 1, he is called Moses' prophet. It says, as God was sending Moses to Pharaoh, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. When God first was sending Moses to Pharaoh, you remember that Moses came up with a slew of excuses of why he was not the man for the job. At the end, he said, basically, simply, Lord, in Exodus 4.13, please send someone else, anybody but me. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? Aaron was not the prophet of the Lord. He was Moses' prophet. And what did this mean for how he would function? What would his role be? He would be Moses' mouthpiece. He would be Moses' spokesman before the nation and before Pharaoh. And there is captured a a good illustration of the role and function of a prophet of God. The prophet of God is his mouthpiece. He speaks what God gives him to speak. In Deuteronomy 18 and also chapter 13, we see two criteria that are put to prophets to see whether they speak truly or falsely as they speak in the name of the Lord. The test of Deuteronomy 18 considers whether the events that the prophet has foretold come to pass or not if what he says is going to be comes to pass he he is likely likely but not necessarily always a true prophet and so let's read Deuteronomy 18 and verses 20 to 22 but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that i have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So there is the first test that a prophet had to meet. But what about in the case where the prophet foretells an event and that event does come true? What other criterion must they meet in order to be considered a true prophet? Deuteronomy 13, the Lord instructed, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says... Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. I think Jesus really summed up these both of these tests in Matthew 7 when he warned us to beware of false prophets. He said, by their fruits you will recognize them. You will know who they are. The fruits of their words and the fruits of their lives. So these two criteria had to be met if a man was to be considered, or a woman, was to be considered a true prophet or prophetess of the Lord. So what is a prophet? A prophet is God's spokesman. A prophet is God's mouthpiece, who by the word of the Lord says, thus says the Lord, and calls the people of the Lord to be faithful to him. That's what a prophet is. Now, I want to walk through having given uh, the testing of God's prophets, let's just do a quick overview of a history of the prophets of God. Eventually, Aaron's prophetic ministry on Moses' behalf ceased, and Moses himself became the, the first great prophet of Israel. After Moses died and his successor Joshua brought the people of God into the land of promise, you remember from your biblical timeline that you should have in your mind's eye, uh, there was 350 or so years during which judges ruled over the people of God pre-monarchy. There were judges that God raised up like Gideon and Samson, those are the most notable. And during that time period there were only two mentions in the book of Judges of any prophetic ministry. There's an unnamed prophet who in one short passage of Scripture reminds the people of God of where they have been redeemed from. And there's also the prophetess Deborah, whose prophetic ministry is mentioned. Uh, She also functioned as a judge. But during that 350 years, there was mostly silence as far as a prophetic voice goes and commenting on that time period first samuel chapter 3 says the word of the lord was rare in those days there was no frequent vision the word of the lord was rare there was no frequent vision first samuel 3 1 samuel comes at the end of the Judges and the beginning of the monarchy. And he really is, in the, the story of Scripture, a transitionary figure. He is the last of the Judges, and he is also an outstanding prophet. He's also a prototype prophet, in a sense, because he is the first of many prophets whose ministries will cross paths with the kings. In fact, God sends Samuel to anoint the first two kings of Israel. Saul, you remember, of the tribe of Benjamin, and David of Judah, who is the man after God's own heart. And Samuel will exert a, a, a strong influence over both of these individuals. He will be followed, Samuel will be followed, by Nathan and the lesser known Gad. But both of those men, will continue that type of ministry as they have an influence and, and give a guiding voice, speak on God's behalf to David the king. After David's son Solomon has reigned for 40 years, you remember his son Rehoboam takes his place, and under his foolishness and, and truly by the sovereign working of God, the kingdom of Israel that was once whole splits into two the ten tribes in the north who are called collectively Israel, and the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, in the south, who are collectively known by the name Judah. And Samaria is the capital city in the north. Jerusalem is the capital city in the south. But the prophetic ministry goes on as these, as men continue to be called and raised up by the Lord to speak His will, to the nation, and especially to the kings. Remember Elijah and Elisha, two very famous names as prophets in Israel. Then, after they have passed off the scene, in the 8th century B.C., about 750 years before Jesus comes, the prophetic ministry takes a massive shift. The prophets continue to speak the word of God verbally, of course. But by the Spirit of God, they are moved to not only speak God's word, but to commit the prophetic word to writing. So we know them as the writing prophets. And the first ones that we have in the 8th century are Amos and Hosea ministering to Israel in the north, and Isaiah and Micah ministering in the south. The last of those prophets, this this type of ministry of writing down, not only speaking, but writing the word of God for the kings and for the nation will continue for the next about 300 years. And we know the last of the writing prophets to be Malachi. After Malachi, there is another period of silence for about 400 years until a man by the name of John, comes out of the wilderness and declares the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew chapter 3. That's a quick overview of the history of the prophets. Now let's talk about Micah, Micah the man. The prophet Micah has a unique ministry amongst the prophets. He is from a small town by the name of Moresheth, and that's about 25 miles southwest, southwest of the capital city of Judah, Jerusalem. But his ministry is unique in the sense that Micah is the only writing prophet who is ministering to both Israel in the north and to his home nation, home kingdom of Judah in the south. And he ministers during the reigns of the kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now Jotham, the first of those kings, was a decent king. Who's, and, and decent is pretty much the best adjective that I can give to him. He's a decent king whose ministry God blesses, but he is not nearly on the level of the superior kings of Judah. Jotham is then followed by his son Ahaz. And Ahaz is thoroughly wicked. He is a failure in every respect, and we would definitely put him on the bottom uh, bottom three kings of Judah, for sure, along with Manasseh, and then we could maybe debate some others. But he's on the bottom three. He will be followed by his very godly son, Hezekiah, who will be really in the top three kings of Judah, along with his ancestor David, and his godly great-grandson, Josiah. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Micah was a contemporary of the great prophet Isaiah, and his ministry is vastly overshadowed, even in the narrative of Scripture by Isaiah. But I want to uh, go to Jeremiah chapter 26 to throw in this note on Micah's behalf. Jeremiah is going to follow 100 years behind Isaiah and Micah. 100 years behind them. And he will minister during the time of godly Josiah all the way until the destructive siege of Jerusalem. And I want to zero in on this incident that happens at the beginning of Josiah's son's reign. So Jeremiah has already been ministering for some time. He has received a favorable reception, certainly on part of the king. And now Josiah has been replaced after 31 years by his son Jehoiakim, who will end up reigning for 11 years. But this is the very beginning. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, this is to Jeremiah, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord. All the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. It may be they will listen and everyone turn from his evil way that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do them because of their evil deeds. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law that I have set before you, and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I send to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. The priests and the prophets. Now you remember, jo- under Josiah, there had been incredible revival in the land. Josiah has just died. This is the beginning of Jehoiakim. Now look at how quickly the people turn away from their conduct, which they had maintained relatively well during Josiah's time. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and the city shall be desolate, without inhabitant? And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord, and took their seat in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. These men, presumably, had been officials also during Josiah's reign. And we can see the continuation of their faithfulness from Jehoiakim's father, Josiah. Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, This man deserves the, deserves the sentence of death, because he has prophesied against the city, as you have heard him with your own ears. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city all the words you have heard. Now therefore mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God and the Lord will relent of the disaster that he has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I am in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon the city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to speak all these words in your ears. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Notice, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah king of Judah and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. Now, I know I'm taking quite a bit of time to, to go over that. And, and what's the point? What's the interesting thing in this? The disaster that the elders are referring to is the disaster of the Assyrian crisis. Three books narrate that event. Second Kings, Second Chronicles, and the book of Isaiah all narrate the, the events of the Assyrian crisis and all three of them record the prophet Isaiah's interaction with Hezekiah and how Hezekiah turned to God and entreated God's favor on behalf of the nation in response to Isaiah's word so what is going on here the elders 100 years later the elders of the nation have not forgotten the ministry of of Isaiah. And it's not a contradiction of the facts of what took place. But what we are seeing is that not only did God use Isaiah, but he was using Micah in those days whose word to Hezekiah brought the seeking after God that led to, led God to relent of the disaster that he had warned Judah of. His ministry was greatly blessed to the Lord. And again, it was unique amongst the prophets. Because he was ministering, he's the only of the writing prophets that we know of, whose ministry concentration was to Israel in the north with Samaria, its capital, and to Judah in the south with Jerusalem, its capital. The Assyrian Empire from the east kept Samaria, the capital of Israel, under siege For three years. When Samaria finally fell in 722 BC. Israel fell with it. Obviously. Israel did not listen. To the word of Micah the prophet. In 701 BC. Sennacherib. The king. And and you know how the timeline works. We're winding our way down to Jesus. So we have lower number. Uh, in 701 B.C., Sennacherib comes to the gate of Jerusalem. He has conquered so many cities in Judah, and he comes to the gate of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah and, peop- and the people of Jerusalem seek after the Lord. And on one night, Micah doesn't record this, the angel of the Lord is sent into the camp of the Assyrians and takes the lives of of 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And Sennacherib is sent packing. What we don't realize without Jeremiah 26 is not only did God use Isaiah's word to avert that disaster, but God was using his servant Micah as well. So that's Micah the man, Micah the prophet, that's the the general background, his his setting for his ministry. Now let's get into Micah the book and just quickly uh, survey the scene. The book of Micah is made up of seven, for the most part, brief chapters. I just want to note a few things as we launch into this series. First of all, the book divides naturally into three rounds of oracles, Three rounds. And every round of uh, oracles has an oracle of judgment and an oracle of salvation. What's an oracle? It is simply God's proclamation of either judgment or salvation that he delivers through his prophet. That's a, an oracle. So seven chapters, three oracles, each featuring an oracle of judgment and salvation, and each of them beginning the same. Chapters 1, 3, and 6, I believe it is, each begins with the word, hear. Hear the word of the Lord. Now there's two passages in Micah that we know very well. One is where we're going to land on December 21st, Lord willing, that's the plan. We'll we'll be in Micah chapter 5, as we consider that great prophecy of God that speaks of Bethlehem, giving rise to the ultimate ruler, the Messiah, to come. And we also are quite familiar with a passage in Micah chapter 6. What does the Lord require of his repentant people? But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And when we get to those sections, which are definitely highlights in the book, you'll see that they are even more um, incredible as we consider them in their context. Back to Micah. Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria, capital city of Israel in the north, and Jerusalem, capital city of Judah, in the south. Here, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and will come down, and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open, like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. We're going to concentrate our attention on this exhortation at the beginning of verse 2. Hear. Hear, you peoples. All of you. Hear the word of the Lord. I've been accused of being deaf in my days. Have any of you? Husbands, I'm thinking, you've been accused of being deaf. You don't listen, or you didn't hear a word that I said. Right under that accusation, and and by the way, just got to throw this in real quick. Since my parents are here, whenever de- my dad hears the accusation, "You're deaf, John," the the response is always the same. What? <laughs> right under that accusation of deafness is the accusation that you have selective hearing. It's not, you didn't hear a word I said, it's, you only hear what you want to hear. And I think most of us have received that particular accusation as well. Israel wasn't necessarily deaf to the word of the Lord. Israel had selective hearing. They only heard what they wanted to hear. As long as that word, that promise, that commandment, that prophecy, or that oracle was in line with what they wanted, scratched their particular itch, well, they held to that word and explained away everything else. If you flip over to chapter two and look at verse six real quick, you'll see this. Do not preach. Thus they preach. And I'm kind of looking forward to getting to that text because that sounds so much like the world, doesn't it? To the church, don't preach. So they preach to us. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. You see, they put all their weight on the words which favored them and explained away everything else. In the days when when judgment was looming and the prophets of God were warning them of that coming judgment, they did not believe the prophetic word. And you can see this in that example we took from Jeremiah 26 just a moment ago. When Jeremiah stood up in the temple and warned them that judgment was coming, what did they want to do? Most of the people wanted to put him to death. How can you say this? How, how, how can Jerusalem possibly fall? Their assumption was that as long as the temple was standing, then Jerusalem's walls were impregnable. There's no way that any enemy could get through. They were safe as long as the temple stood. And and being the people of God, how how would the temple of God within Jerusalem's walls ever come down? So they believed that they were perfectly safe and secure. They, They believed that part of Exodus 19 that said, you will be to me a, a treasured possession above all nations. They believe that. We're, we're God's people. But they neglected the second part that said, if you obey me. They ignored the conditional nature of that old covenant. They only heard what they wanted to hear. We must all hear the word of God. And if you will hear the word of God truly, you must never merely hear the word of God selectively. We must put weight where God puts weight. We must achieve that biblical balance. If you put so much weight on God's promises of good and neglect the commandments to do good, you will not have biblical balance. If you put so much weight on God's word of love, and you neglect God's word of judgment, you will be biblically imbalanced. If you lay emphasis on, let's say, external religion, which God certainly commands, but you neglect the inner self, the heart and its affections, you will not be biblically balanced. You cannot hear the word of God truly if we constantly are hearing the word of God selectively. Many years ago, and this is not to contradict something that Gary brought up in, in Sunday school this morning, that uh, most of the forefathers were Christians. But many years ago, one of those who drafted, actually the, the major mind and hands in the drafting of the Constitution, uh, he would become third president of the United States. One of the American presidents, he took scissors to the Bible and he made up his own. He, he wanted to keep Jesus' moral example, but he wanted to do away with pretty much everything else. And so the, the Jefferson Bible, as it's called, cuts out the virgin birth and the resurrection of God because anything being having a, a worldview informed by the previous enlightenment of the, the, uh, well, that earlier in that century, Jefferson was rejecting the supernatural intervention of God in the world, not a theist view, that wasn't his worldview, theism, but deism. God, God had created, perhaps, and, 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 and we know the character of God and such, but as far as intervention, as far as being involved in creation, and so that was, The Jefferson's Bible. What happens if you cut out parts of the Word of God? You're not only cutting at the Word of God, you're cutting at the person of God. If you reject that part of His Word, you are rejecting that part of Him. And what do you have then, as far as God goes? You don't have the true God. You have a God of your own making made in your image, made after your own likeness. That's why we must be very careful to heed what God says to Micah, through Micah. Hear the word of God. Hear the full counsel of God's word. Now, can you imagine somebody doing like what Jefferson did and like many, many people have done. Can you imagine someone doing that with an autobiography? a reader doing that to an author's autobiography, the story of his life and so on. Well, I don't like what he did in 1996 to 1998, so I'm just going to cut that part out of the book. Or I don't like that part of her personality, so I'm just going to rip those pages out. The reader would be rewriting the author, not just the book, but the author himself or herself. That's what people do with the Bible. And it's what we must never be guilty of. If if we cut out certain attributes that we don't find very pleasant, if we cut out um, unpleasant sections of the Word of God, we are cutting at the person of God. And this is nothing less than treason. We have, since the beginning, not only wanted to rewrite the rules... We have wanted to rewrite the ruler, and God has not left that open to us. So I ask you, do you hear the word of God truly? Or are there sections of God's word that you want to explain away? The Bible insists that God is like this, but you don't like that. It's not favorable. It's not pleasant. Do you try to explain it away? Hear the word of God. Here's an example. And this is what we must realize. You remember in our previous series, The Glorious God, we kept going back and back to Exodus 33 and 34. And God promised Moses that all of his goodness would pass before Moses. And what did he end up proclaiming in essence? he ended up proclaiming to Moses that he is faithful to love and faithful to judge. And both of those things, which are truly different from one another, are under the umbrella of the goodness of God. Mercy is certainly pleasant. Judgment is not pleasant. But judgment, the justice of God, is no less good than the mercy of God, than the steadfast love of God. Hear the word of the Lord. You better believe we're going to take this to Jesus. The first great prophet of Israel was Moses. But Moses and every prophet that followed him right through to John the Baptist, they all were types of the great prophet to come. If you'll turn your attention back to Deuteronomy 18. Moses, in these verses of 15 to 19, prophesied of the greater prophet who was to come. And this is what he said. The Lord your God... "...will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly." Remember when they met before God at Sinai and God came down in the dark cloud and the thunder, the quaking of the mountain? And you remember what the people's response was, their fear? Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. You remember what God said about Aaron? Now he, he says of the greater prophet to come, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So when John the Baptist appeared, emerged from the wilderness, and he was baptizing uh, at the Jordan River and proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God, authorities came from Jerusalem. And they said to him, do you remember? Are you the prophet, the prophet? They knew he was a prophet, that was obvious. But are you the prophet? And John's answer was immediate, I am not. That was John 1. In, in John chapter 6, Jesus has just finished feeding 5,000 plus with a, a meal that began as five loaves of bread and two fish. And the people's response was, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And they are recalling Moses' prophecy back in Deuteronomy 18. In the very next chapter, Jesus is preaching in Jerusalem and He is urging the people to come to Him for drink. And they say the, the response of the crowd is, This really is the prophet. The prophet. And recall what Jesus said in John 5. Going back to all that Moses had said and written from Genesis to Deuteronomy, he said, Moses wrote of me. Or recall. When Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, gathered there with his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and there appeared with Jesus there those two former prophets, Moses and Elijah. Peter's instinct was that they honor all three prophets, That's why he spoke as he did about making the the tents or the tabernacles for each of them. He wanted to honor all three prophets. But then God the Father himself spoke from the glory cloud. Matthew 17, 5 through 8. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Remember what he commands his disciples to do? Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. That's fascinating. It's there, that word about they saw no one but Jesus only, because that's what happened. But there's another deeper emphasis that Matthew is working to establish and that we must understand. You notice in the text, it doesn't say that Moses and Elijah were gone. It's, the emphasis is not on their absence. The, the focus is on Jesus' presence. It's not that the word of the former prophets has passed away, but the fulfillment of the prophet's word is standing before them what we must understand as we consider the message of Micah going forward, what we must understand is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophetic office and the prophetic word. He is God's messenger, and He is God's message to mankind. That's why God says to us, Listen to Him. He focuses our concentration on the person, on the work, and on the word of His Son. Now, here's a question as we wrap this thing up. Why then go to the prophets? Oh, I mean, a few weeks ago, you may remember that we were covering Joel one day, another one of the minor prophets. Why go to Joel? Why spend this time in the book of Micah? Why not just go straight to Jesus. Well, for one thing, they have so much to tell us about Jesus. More, more about Jesus. Isn't that our prayer? Isn't that what we sing? Isn't that what the people of God want? And we have so much advantage today. I don't know if you take this to heart, but if you read your Bible, if you will understand the the scope of the story, the, the history of our redemption, you will marvel that God put you here now. Because now that we live in the day in which, as the Apostle Paul described it, the end of the ages has come upon us. These last days. We look back with hindsight. And we look back with the enlightenment that the Holy Spirit lends to us. And as we look back at God's story, at God's great work of redemption as it spans over ages, the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God are open to us because the written word speaks to us of the living word. It is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear the word of the Lord. Our Father says to us concerning His Son, listen to Him. So how do I do this? Practically. Same thing you always hear. Read the Bible. Pray. Pray that God would speak to you. Pray over what he does speak to you. And keep your eye peeled and your ear tuned all through the word for Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God. For long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So seek to understand him. Hear Micah with an eye and ear for Jesus. Read the word of God, the great story of God, his work of redemption as he tells it and fulfills it over through the pages of scripture with an eye and ear for Jesus. You will find all of your life, you will find all of your need, you will find all of your hope, you will find all of your righteousness, you will find every cause for singing in the person of God's son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And in him, we are drawn right into the love and the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray, Father, that every single person here, no matter where they are in life, no matter what their particular roles and responsibilities are right now, no matter what their age, no matter their maturity, I pray that we would be each people of your book, people of your word, so that we might be the people of your son, your possession, your chosen people. I pray, Father, that with heart and soul and mind and strength, we would seek after Christ and love Christ your son until he comes grow us, conform us to His image. May we all grow up together as His body into our head, our Lord Jesus Christ. By your mercy and grace, in Jesus' name, amen.